0: Well, good morning, Village Church. Good morning, good morning. Uh, My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Genesis chapter 22. Open up your Bibles. Genesis chapter 22. Here's a, a scary thought. What if your legacy was defined by your most rebellious season of life? Like, think about it. Like, what if your legacy was defined by you in your teenage years or your 20s, or for some of you, let's be straight, it's probably, it might be like your 50s, right? Um, or your 60s. Like, what if, you, what if you took the one decade or season of your life where you were the most rebellious and God said, no, this is your story, this is, this is your legacy. Let me, let me tell you a, a reaction that people have had to the Abraham story. Um, they read the New Testament, they see, yay, Abraham is a man of faith, that's how he's remembered, but then we read these stories and, and the reaction has been this, Michael, I feel like Your perspective on Abraham is inconsistent with the New Testament's perspective on Abraham. And do you know what I say to that? You're right. (laughs) And I'm really glad that you're right. Because the the Old Testament, what it does is it tells the whole story. And, And the New Testament gives you a glimpse into how heaven sees things. Uh, What the New Testament does is it finds these Old Testament saints, and it finds their most wonderful, God-exaltering, God-glorifying attribute. It plucks it out and says, look at who they are. Aren't you really glad? Aren't you really glad that David is remembered as a man after God's own heart, despite the fact that honestly, the last 20 years of his life, he was sort of a moron. Like when we talk to the life of David, the first half was like, this guy's amazing, he's so wonderful, and yet you get to the end of the second half of his life, and it is one terrible story after another. And I'm so glad that in the the economy of God, when heaven looks down and it remembers our legacies, they highlight the positives. And so you're right, the New Testament is sort of cherry-picking. This is how Abraham, the patriarch of our faith, is going to remember. This is how David, uh, the king of Israel, is going to be remembered primarily as the New Testament comments on him. It's David, a man uh, whose heart is after God. You get to Moses, he gets to the end of his life, and Moses just royally screws up, doesn't even get to go in the promised land, but that's not how he's remembered, is it? Aren't you so glad that your legacy is not defined by your worst moments? Even if your worst moments are are the first nine-tenths of your life? Oh my goodness. So I I want to give you encouragement. This is great news, I think, for everybody in this room. My legacy does not need to be defined by my failure, but by my faith. I'm looking at a bunch of people who've had years and decades of failure. And yet what you do from this point on can be the way your legacy is ultimately defined. And this is the story of the New Testament. Here's what we have. In Abraham... Every stinking story is frustrating. In its context, in the flow of the narrative, it is a very frustrating story. Even the stories that the New Testament looks back on and says, look, he had faith when he left um, Ur to go to the promised land. But then you start reading, you're like, wait a minute. He, he stopped in a city, tried to stay there. The Lord had to pluck him out. Then he gets to the promised land. He abandons it, goes to Egypt, lies to Pharaoh. Like Even the good stories that the New Testament plucks out and tells us about are just littered with really, really frustrating context and narratives. And I'm so glad that God does not, the way heaven sees me, does not define my legacy— by my failures or my seasons of failures. But literally, Abraham's legacy is almost exclusively defined by the last major story of his life, which is Genesis chapter 22. So um, if you open up your sermon notes, if you go to the hub uh, at the Village Church website, uh, you can also find digital sermon notes there. You can fill them out, email them to yourselves. As we get into this, what I need to do for you is I need to set the table um, for of this text for you. I want to share with you four principles of interpreting Old Testament narrative. You can go to the next um, couple slides. Four principles of interpreting Old Testament narrative. Uh, number one, Old Testament narrative rarely tells you, but it shows you. So I can't tell you how many people um, come back to me and they're like saying, but the Bible doesn't say it's bad. The Bible doesn't say polygamy is bad. Guess what? Every time a man has more than one wife, does it go good for him or poorly for him? Every single time. It doesn't need to tell you because it shows you. Okay. Now, we could talk about polygamy and there's, it's a complex issue, but at the end of the day, the narrative is showing you what is good and what is right by how things often turn out. Number two, Old Testament narrative expects that all of the readers understand and know Old Testament law. So you read Old Testament, especially, uh, we'll call it the first five books of the Bible, um, the stories that happen in here. The expectation is that you already know systems of law. Now the vast majority of us in this room don't actually know Old Testament law that well. So one of my jobs is to bring you up to speed where there's knowledge gaps. But there's an expectation that especially for their morality, that you're going to know the heart of God through Old Testament law and morality, and you can actually superimpose that onto the text to see we God really thinks. Number three, Old Testament narrative is written with an immense amount of white space. This is for you, the reader, to self-reflect. There are so many places in the scripture where I want more information. Why did they do that? What was motivating them? Why don't you give me more detail? What happened uh, in this space and time? For example, in uh, Genesis chapter 21, it ends, and in Genesis chapter 22 today is years later. Years later. Like one verse, we fast forward years, maybe even a decade or more. But here's what happens in the white space the white space of these stories and all the gaps and all the missing information, the people of God have spent time surmising, have spent time asking, what would I do? What are some plausible reasons for this? The white space actually gives you the time to put yourself in the text. What would I do if I was here? Why might this have happened? And this is actually a skill of reading Old Testament narrative, empathy. You were created to put yourself in the text. That's the very nature of narrative. It's not just propositional and out there. It's empathetic, and you're supposed to read it as if you were really there. Number four, Old Testament narrative is written to display, particularly the first five books of the Bible, the beauty of Yahweh in contrast to the heartlessness of pagan gods. Uh, The reason I say that is because all four of these themes are going to come up in this final story. And so Old Testament narrative, uh, most evangelical Christians now in the 21st century, we we just read it and we're like, tell me the facts. I want to know the facts. And yet the most mature of Christians immerse themselves and they empathize. They put their minds there uh, into the Old Testament narrative stories. Uh, One of the reasons I love to teach Old Testament narrative especially is because it's one of the largest genres in scripture. The second favorite thing to teach is Old Testament poetry because between the two, they make up the vast amount of scriptural content that we have. All right, so Genesis chapter 22, let's get some context. All the details of this chapter are here to surprise you, to keep you on the edge of your seat. It is a shocking chapter. Again, the challenge for um, most Christians is that um, we think we know the details. We've heard the children's version of the story. We've heard the story taught moralistically. And so the actual art of empathy of putting yourself in Abraham's shoes and putting yourself in Isaac's shoes has really, really not been done by most people who've studied this. So what I want to invite you to do is to jump into the story. I want to, I want to invite you to empathize. What, what would you have done if you were Abraham? What would you have done if you were Isaac? What does this tell you about God? Um, some, some number of years have passed um, between Genesis 21 and 22. We don't know how many. The text doesn't tell us. We know it is a while. We know it is a long while. The second thing you need to know is that Isaac, uh, this is probably going to be very unhelpful for your empathy, but here's what we know. Isaac is older than five and younger than 37. <laughs> You're like, I want to know exactly what it is. And, and so the text is a little elusive. We know he's old enough to walk and talk, but we also know that um, Sarah died and that uh, this happened before Sarah died. And she, when she died, he was roughly 37 years old. So this is the range. The text seems to imply that he's young and strong. I mean, I I would want to place him between 10 and 16 years old in that range. He's heavy enough, uh, strong enough to carry wood for a sacrifice. He's old enough to have dialogue and to discuss, to understand sacrificial laws and systems, if you will, uh, from the Canaanite cultural world. Uh, He's old enough to have dialogues. And so there's a lot of stuff happening here um, that leads me to believe he's younger, some of the words they use, but it's not that easy. Uh, And finally, what you need to know is that all the promises, all the impossible promises of Yahweh have come true. Somehow this this man, this old man Abraham, and this old woman Sarah, uh, they have remarkably and miraculously had a baby way past their years. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it starts off with a doozy. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now here's what probably a third of you in this room are thinking. Wait a minute. I thought the Bible said that God doesn't test his people. And I have good news for you you're wrong. God doesn't tempt his people. And the two are very different. But we need to put on on the table a a hard reality. And I think this is going to set up, this is going to set up how you understand what God is up to. God will test you. And your test today is to evaluate your fittedness for future responsibility. I want you to hear me. Your test today is here to evaluate whether or not God can grant you greater spiritual responsibility in the future. It's never about today. It's always about tomorrow. And here's what I know about the vast majority of you in this room. You are being tested right now. You have been hurt. That is a test. You are in pain. That is a test. You have been let down, that is a test. Your life is harder than you wanted, that is a test. Life has not met your expectations, that is a test. And the Lord is watching. Now salvation, is salvation a test? No, it's by grace through faith. Like you can be saved and fail tests for greater responsibility, right? We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about, um, as a dad, if I have responsibilities to give to my children, am I going to give it to the kid who lies to me all the time? And the answer is, no, I'm going to give it to the kid who is trustworthy and reliable. And the more fragile and the greater the responsibility, the more I need to be able to trust the kid. And so here's what we're finding right now, is that God is going to test him. And God is going to see whether or not Abraham can truly bear the weight of what he is about to do through him and the stuff he's going to give him. James 1.3 says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's what it's supposed to produce in you. So most of you in this room right now are in a test, right? Right now, God is looking at you, and here's what it's supposed to do to you. It is supposed to produce uh, steadfastness, which is faithfulness through difficulty and tragedy. The faithfulness and tragedy come, the letdowns, the unmet expectations. Now, here's the deal. Will you continue to be faithful despite the tragedy? despite the disappointment. Because that's how God knows whether or not you pass the test. You continue in faithfulness. Now verse 1 goes on and says, And said to him, Abraham. And he said, Abraham, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now before we get to what he tells him to do, uh, I want to just share some insights with you. Number one, everyone that Abraham truly loved is gone. Let me just process this for a moment. Some of this might be new if you're newer here to Village Church, but uh, Terah, his father, is dead. Very plausibly, we saw dead because of Abraham's disobedience by taking him with him when he wasn't supposed to take him with him to the Promised Land. Um, What we find here is that uh, Hagar, uh, his mistress, uh, his lover whom he replaced Sarah with, she's gone. We haven't seen her in years. Ishmael, his beloved son whom he loved dearly, is gone. He's no longer in the picture. It's interesting because actually, legitimately, Isaac isn't his only son. But in God's eyes and in this circumstance, he has no other son. Isaac is is it? Everybody else is gone. He has Sarah with him. And and again, we're some years later, and I think what we're going to start to see is that somehow Sarah and Abraham have sort of reconciled and brought this thing together. But it's Abraham, it's Sarah, and it's Isaac, and that is it. And it seems that he's embraced this, this kid because initially when God promised him, Isaac, what did, what did Abraham say? Keep him. I'll stick with Ishmael. I don't want him. And so now apparently whatever happened in Abraham's heart, his heart is affectionate to this son, which in the flow of the narrative is a bit unexpected. So then he says to him, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Would you do me a favor? Would you take that word Moriah, put that in the margin of your mind, keep it over there. We're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon." And I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. If, if you're reading this for the first time, this whole story, you don't know the outcome. here's your, here's your thought: Who is this God? Who I, I don't know this God? Um, the Canaanite gods demanded your loyalty? Demanded your firstborn children. They demanded you sacrifice them uh, as burnt offerings on altars. Like Yahweh is supposed to be incredibly different. Uh, and I don't know who I don't know who this who this Yahweh is. It's like being married to somebody for 45 years. And then waking up and realizing they've had a secret life and a secret family the entire time. You're like, who who are you? This is not just like, oh, a hard ask. God has spent decades with Abraham proving to him that he is not like these other false gods. He is infinitely more kind and gracious and beautiful and compelling. And here we are. Now he's just turning into these other gods. What is going on here? Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Does he complain at all? I feel like I'd have some serious words with God, All right? Don't so the Bible's pretty clear. When, when, when Abraham doesn't like something God's going to do, does he speak? Yeah. And does God listen? Yeah. And do they dialogue? Yeah. doesn't say a word. He gets on his donkey, he gathers his men, and they just go. And he cut the word for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, you're going to just find foreshadowing, by the way, all throughout this. If, if you haven't picked up yet, this whole story is one big fat arrow that points to Jesus and the crucifixion. Okay, That's, that's what this is about. Forget morality. Forget all the other things that God could do in your life. Like big blinking arrow, Jesus. Jesus is the plan, and God has given these foreshadows all throughout the Old Testament, pointing us there. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the, wor- the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. White space. What is Isaac doing? You don't know. Okay, dad, whatever you want. Like, do do you see how when there are details that are just needed for me to make sense of what's happening, the Lord just leaves them out? Jump in. This is where Jewish Jewish scholars for, for millennia have just jumped in and said, what would I do? What would I do? This is the point. Jump in. Jump in. You're not distant from this. What would you do if your dad laid you on a pile of wood and it was about to burn you alive? Would you fight? He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Pop quiz. Uh, Which one of these represents Jesus? Isaac. Good, Isaac. Good, (laughs) Isaac said to his father, "My father, I mean, do you feel this?" And he said, "Here I am, my son." He said, "Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering?" I want. I want to know. What did What did Abraham tell him? I mean, this is all. This is all just super emotional. Abraham said to him, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, white space. What are they talking about? What's the conversation? What if you thought you had your last 20 minutes with your one and only son? What conversation would you have? I can tell you a lot of things that I would want to say. You also don't want to freak him out. You want to protect him. What does Abraham feel? Empathize, jump in. You have one son. You've prayed for this son. You've waited for this son. This is the son that God had promised. You've struggled with infertility for years, and the Lord says, Give him away. What do you do? Personally, I feel like there should be more fighting in this text. I feel like Abraham should be fighting with God. I feel like Isaac should be fighting with Abraham. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So what kind of father would do this? Let me give you an answer. Tens of thousands. This is not a new ritual. This is a known ritual. This, This is what... Thousands of fathers, under the leadership of the Canaanite gods, have done to their firstborn sons. This is life in Canaan. Isaac, I mean, who knows what he's thinking? I do know this Abraham's over 100 years old, and I, I, I can imagine my eight year old could take my 100 year old grandpa down, right? Verse 10, then Abraham reached. He reached out his hand, he took the knife. Just the words are chosen so meticulously to slaughter his son. Every dad reading this to their kids for the first time in ancient Israel would probably stop and say, Son, how would you feel if you were Isaac? Just pause them, soak in the moment. Every detail is excruciating. By the way, this isn't like, I got to get chapter 22 done in my Devo plan today. This is pause, empathize, stop, surmise. What would you do? What does this tell you about God? How could God plausibly do this? And then there's the greatest, I think, moment of just relief in all of scripture. The angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, shows up, says this. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, ah! Like, the idea is that Abraham is in motion. And he says, here I am! Like, thank God, right? And every reader is like, oh, what is going on here? Why is the Lord doing this? And, and, and Jesus says to him in verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I don't want you to miss the absolute irony of being able to read this, this side of the crucifixion. Jesus himself stops him because Jesus himself has every intention of being the new Isaac. Because Jesus has every intention of going through with the slaughter of his body under his heavenly father. Why test him? Well, is Abraham's heart laid bare before you? Guys, the the man of faith has finally emerged. The Abraham that we know and love from the New Testament that they talk about, he's finally here, and it's a hundred and some odd years into this guy's life. This is an unforgettable moment for every follower of Yahweh from this moment on. Yahweh is not like the Canaanite gods. There are so many false religions and false gods in our world right now, and Yahweh is infinitely more beautiful and compelling and gracious and merciful. Verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, I mean, this is just what I'm imagining. I'm imagining tears and tears and tears and wailing and sobbing and relief. Like, I, I think we just like, we, we sterilize like this guy. We're like, you walked over and then he got the ram out of the thicket. And then, you know, like, like, this is not how you're supposed to be. And Abraham went and he took the ram. He offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I want to just shout a couple things right now. What didn't happen in this story that has happened in every other story so far? No more negotiating with God. No more running from God. No more throwing away the promises of God. No more doubting. Whatever has happened between Genesis chapter 21 and Genesis chapter 22, whatever happened in this white space of time, you fill in the blanks with your own imagination, whatever it was, radical transformation has happened in this man. And finally, we get to meet the Abraham that the New Testament is so proud of. I want to read this to you, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 to 19. I want you to just get inside of Abraham's heart and mind, and I want to drop maybe some new information on you uh, that might change how you even understand what just happened. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. I mean, this kid is the promise. Right, The whole nation is going to emerge from this kid. And so here's what goes on in Abraham's mind. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. Let me tell you what is so amazing about this. Do you know what happens in the process of offering a burnt offering? Okay, so in our brains, here's what I think happens. He stabs him in the heart. Isaac slowly bleeds to death. He waits till he's unconscious, and then they light him on fire. No, it's actually not what happens. Uh, first, the blood was sprinkled around the altar. The animal was flayed, divided. The pieces being placed above the wood and on the altar and the skin, the only thing that, that's left. The process of preparing a burnt offering, is, it's disgusting. This isn't just kill him and burn him. So this is kill him, dismember him, place him strategically, burn him. And here, here's his expectation. Abraham's heart said this, Lord... You've never failed me. Every promise of yours has been impossible. They have come true. You even can take my dismembered, burned alive son in ashes and give him new life. This is the man of faith that the New Testament wants you to see. This is unbelievable. This is beautiful. Isn't this how you want to be remembered if you're Abraham? I don't even want Genesis chapter 12 to 21 in my story. I just want this, right? but the reason Genesis chapter 12 to 21 are there is to show you how beautiful this really is in contrast to where he's come from and to give God as much glory as humanly possible. Here's how it ends. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, Jesus, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. And after this, Isaac takes center stage in the narrative. So what? Number one, I want to draw your attention to Mount Moriah. God shows Mount Moriah from eternity past. It's actually um, a very beautiful principle throughout Scripture. Um, Mount Moriah today is one of the most valuable pieces of real estate um, and one of the most hotly contested pieces of real estate on Earth. God brought Abraham and Isaac here, provided a sacrifice. This was in Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. Uh, This was the exact place where the angel of the Lord Jesus stood with the sword ready to kill tens of thousands of Jews because of David's sin. Um, This was also the place where God brought David. David provided a sacrifice and appeased the wrath of God and spared so much of the nation of Israel. Solomon's Temple, the Temple Mount here, Mount Moriah. The threshing floor of this story from 2 Samuel chapter 24. Sacrifices would be made to God here for thousands of years, hundreds of years. This this site became the intersection of the mercy of God and the wrath of God for the people of God perpetually. Ironically, it was not very far off from probably this location where Jesus Christ himself was sacrificed. Um, this 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 location is one of the most meaningful throughout Scripture. Number two, Abraham and Isaac—all of this—it's a foreshadow of this greatest sacrifice. God so loved the world, like that—you know—it doesn't mean anything when you think about the Father's love and you think about His willingness to pour out the fullness of His wrath on His Son. You're supposed to say that's unimaginable and that is unthinkable. The reason God made dads and moms with the desire to protect your children with the affection you have for them is to give you a glimpse of his love and his affection for his children, first of which is Jesus. And God the Father, who loves Jesus with a pure, more beautiful love than any father could ever surmise— poured out his wrath on a very willing son. The New Testament gives you some perspective as to why Isaac was so complacent. The reason is because he is an image of Christ, who not as a victim, but a willing participant because of his love for the people of God, took on his body, soul, and emotions the full punishment of the Father's wrath. He allowed the Father to slaughter him so that you would never have to be slaughtered. One of my favorite ways just to talk about communion here at Village Church is to say this. You have two options Number one is you are slaughtered for your sin in hell, or Jesus is slaughtered for you in your behalf. And, And this text points to this beautiful reality as God provides a ram in the thicket that God offers a substitute sacrifice. In the divine economy and the way God works, either you pay for your sins or Jesus pays for your sins as a substitute. And so I thought maybe the best way just to close our series on Abraham, if I were Abraham, here's what I would want after dying and seeing Jesus. Um, I would want my life to be a big, fair, fat arrow that points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I want my life to finish in such a way that glorifies him. And so I want to come together as, as a body of Christ. Uh, I want to close out the, the, the life of Abraham by drawing us back to the cross. The very thing that his life, the end of his life pointed to, we're going to take these moments and we're going to look back to, and we're going to remember that, that God the Father provided the sacrifice that you needed through his son, Jesus Christ. And so maybe today you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, and you've seen God as stoic and distant or whatever you've seen him as, and, and what the story of Abraham shows us is that God is a loving father, that God is a good dad, and that God has loved you so much that he actually gave his son, Jesus, to die for your sins so you would never have to. And to validate that the sacrifice was truly accepted, God raised his son Jesus from the dead and has glorified him and every single name under heaven will bow at the name of Jesus. All of heaven and hell and humanity see a resurrected Jesus Christ who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus himself took on Our punishment for us. So if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I have amazing news for you. I want to just dismantle one simple, ridiculous lie that almost everybody in this room has believed at one time in their life, so you're in good company if you're still here. And the lie is this, good people go to heaven. The sacrifice of Jesus is unnecessary if good people go to heaven. This whole story is unnecessary if good people go to heaven. Good people do not go to heaven. In fact, in God's economy, there are no good people before God. Good is an arbitrary distinction that we make up as we compare ourselves to one another. In fact, good people in the world's eyes end up going to hell unless Jesus Christ pays for their sins. And the only way to have Jesus Christ's blood cover your sins is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. That is it. And so here's the question for you and every other human on the planet. Will I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins? Because there are no other ways to be forgiven. It's not going to be through your good works. It is going to be only through faith in Jesus, period. I know it sounds so simple, and it sounds so crazy. And the beauty of the gospel is that it is simple and it is crazy. That you cannot work for it, but Jesus did the work for you. That is so beautiful. It is so meaningful. And right now, he is offering you salvation for free, not by being good, like all the other false religions of this world do, but through trusting in Jesus Christ, who is good for you. The great substitute. So I want to offer that to you today. Uh, Maybe you're with us and you have never trusted in Christ and right now you have no intention of doing so. I want to tell you, I'm just really glad you're here. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion and here's what I want to ask of you. When the elements come by you, would you just let them pass? The scriptures tell us that when we partake of communion, here's what we're doing. We're making a nonverbal declaration that I believe. And if you've never believed and you're not ready to trust in Christ yet, I just want to say, love you. But if you let the elements pass, that that would be our request. Maybe you're visiting with us from another church uh, and, and you don't know, can I take communion there? Uh, communion can be so weird for people visiting churches. I want to tell you that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you, would you partake of communion with us? We are one body in Jesus Christ. So here's, here's what we're going to do um, to end the series on Abraham. We're going to have a time of silence. Um, we're going to sing together when that time is done. And uh, we're going to partake and we're going to remember what the life of Abraham pointed to, which is the life and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's have a time of silence as we remember.